Welcome to Outside In, a one-half-hour interview and conversation about public policy between me, Roger Kahn, and one of the many interesting people visiting the Crested Butte and Gunnison Valley this summer to share their knowledge, insights, wisdom with people in our community. Ellen Sweets grew up in a St. Louis newspaper family, and she followed in that tradition. Notably, her father helped found one of the nation's oldest black weekly newspapers, the St. Louis American. It is now in its 90th year of publication. In addition to working as a reporter at the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, the Dallas Morning News, the Denver Post, and the Austin American Statesman, she has written for magazines and edited corporate publications for AT&T and written editorial copy for Neiman Marcus. She served as executive director of the St. Louis Civil Rights Enforcement Agency, which is tasked with tracking compliance with the city's minority hiring practices. In the last 15 years of her 50-year career, she devoted them to food writing, for which she was twice nominated for the James Beard Award and winning it once as part of a three-member team. After retiring from the Denver Post, she returned to Texas to write a culinary memoir about her 20-year friendship with the late political columnist Molly Ivins. The book, Stirring Up with Molly Ivins, was based on their mutual love of cooking. She is the proud mother of three adult children. She spoke last night to the Public Policy Forum under the topic, The Voting Booth, Be There or Be Square. Ellen Sweets, it's an honor to have you with us. I'm delighted you're joining us. Thank you for coming to Outside In. Thank you for inviting me. Ellen, I want to get right into the topic. Um, you know, when, when our founding fathers formed our nation, Women were not allowed to vote. African-American people were not allowed to vote. And it was hard fought. The Civil War indirectly was about not just only the civil rights of black people, but so that they would not vote. In 18, I guess it was 69, maybe, the 15th Amendment was passed, which gave black American men the right to vote. It Why gave them the right, but it didn't guarantee that they'd be able to exercise it. That's right. And, and so now, how did they have to, what did they have to do to be able to exercise that right? How did they fight for those rights? It was a long, hard struggle. And it's being reiterated now uh, and it's it's being directed primarily at a, a, a voting block of people, which still encompasses uh, overwhelmingly minorities. It took a fight. It took a struggle. It took, as they say, keeping on, keeping on. And people died along the way, even in the 19th century. The, the consolation in more modern history has been a coalition of whites and blacks and Spanish speakers. Uh, the, the Muslim contingency was not 
added until relatively recently. But it took this coalition, and it always takes a group of people dedicated to making change. And over the years, well, I mean, we've seen, we've seen um, in, in more recent memory for most people, the voter registrations in Mississippi, where blacks and whites died, where houses were firebombed. We know this history. The, the, the question in the 21st century is, how do we address it? How do we fight at, uh, efforts at uh, voter suppression? And I say it over and over and over again. Money is important, but more important are people turning out to vote. Our voting, our track record for voting in this country is pretty shameful when you compare to that of developing countries who, having seen our success uh, as a democratic republic, want the same thing. And they're prepared to do anything to stand in desert sun, to stand in pouring rain, to vote. And the question, the big question for me remains and will remain right up until November. What is it going to take to get people to the polls? Well, I'd like to come back to that question because I think it's an absolutely essential and central question. But I, I'd like to go backwards for a quick second. Following black men getting to the right to vote with the 15th Amendment, what was the white response to that? What was the issuance of poll tax, of literary tests, things like that? What was that all about? It depended. It depended on where you were. In Louisiana, which had a strong multicultural community uh, evolving with the presence of the French and the Spanish and the English, um, and the English uh, did not favor uh, slavery. And there was more, there was more of a coalition. There, there were middle-class blacks in Louisiana. And right after slavery, there were middle-class blacks in other parts of the South. And it's very interesting, as long as there are just a small percentage of people getting on, that's okay. But when it looks like you're starting to come up against the man, there's a shift. And so blacks had their own businesses. They had their own uh, hair salons. They had their own grocery stores. And people got along fairly well. But did they have the right to vote? Or did they, were they allowed to vote they easily? They had the right to vote eventually. They didn't right away. But eventually, yes, they did. But then, have, again, as I said, having the right to vote doesn't mean that you get to. And in communities in Mississippi, for example, which are Mississippi and Alabama, which are consistently the worst two states when it comes to repres repression of any people, and that includes poor whites, and this is, can I just digress a moment to sure. say that I've never been a conspiracy theorist, but I deep down believe that Malcolm X and Martin Luther King had to die, especially if Bobby Kennedy was going to be president. 
So they took him out too. They, I don't know who they are. But the most dangerous thing in this country is what MLK and Malcolm X were doing, and that was bringing a broad-based community of poor whites, poor blacks, disenchanted white liberals, and angry blacks together. Cannot have that in this country. It totally disrupts the power structure. Well, actually, if I understand it correctly, um, 75 years before King and and, uh, Malcolm X and uh, Kennedy, there were attempts at farmer, and there were, in fact, farmer, white farmer and African-American rebellions. Yes. So your, your theory goes back a lot further than, than uh, just the last half of the 20th century. Historically, people who have power are very reluctant to cede it or to share it. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what, we, what we had going on. Why, why was the poll tax instituted? Why were the literacy tests instituted? To prevent um, blacks from voting. How did that happen? Well, it was assumed that you didn't have enough money. You, you were paid so little. And you were not likely to save it up because if you worked on a plantation, you, you, you got paid in leftover food and your own gardens. You, you didn't get a salary. So how could you pay the poll tax? And... It was, it was instituted as a way to keep blacks and, by the way, Mexicans uh, from being able to vote. And because what about liter- when you can vote, you have power. What about literacy tests? Well, as you well know, slaves were not allowed to read. They didn't need, I, I can't remember now whether or not they have even had the Bible. But I know that books were smuggled in the quote-unquote good plantations, um, the women folk slipped books to people, and people taught themselves to read. Because once again, an educated, informed populace can make decisions that do not necessarily coalesce with those of the people for whom they work. So they can make their own decisions. Once again, power does not, does not want that to happen because you don't, you don't challenge me. And by the way, you don't get to know more than I do about fill in the blank. And it's a threat. Well, let, let's move forward to the 1960s in, in which you were a young person. And, and um, I understand you were in England for a good deal of that period. But yeah. uh, you, you were aware of what was happening in this country and the civil rights movement Oh, yeah. as we currently understand the modern civil rights movement, uh, really sort of began with the 1954 Supreme Court decision, Brown versus the Board of Ed. And then students sat in in 1960 in Greensboro, North Carolina. And then there were all kinds of protests all over the country in the first three or four years of the 60s, five years of the 60s, nonviolent protests before they erupted into rebellions, armed rebellions. 
Bayard Rustin, who I think you probably know about. He's a family friend. Bayard Rustin famously wrote and spoke about going from protest to politics. And following that, the Council of Federated Organizations, COFO, called people from Miss to, into Mississippi for voter registration and education. Don't forget A. Philip Randolph. I would never forget A. Philip yeah, Randolph. And, and the, uh, one of the first black unions in the country. Absolutely. And, and um, because of him, uh, the union's sleeping car porters were salaried, became uh, salaried, and had rights that they had not had before. And as a very interesting footnote, as a literary woman, you will appreciate that every single night a Philip Randolph read poetry to his wife. Yeah. And quite a remarkable piece of... He was an extraordinary person. Yes, he was. I want to go back to the question I was raising. When Why did Bayard Rustin urge those of us who were young activists at that time to go from protest to politics? And what did that mean in terms of the social movement of the 60s? Well, politics is where the power is. If you're a member of a board, if you're a member of the board uh, of aldermen, and l- let me just digress for a minute to, to give you an, uh, a sort of answer to that. Uh, growing up, I lived in an all-black neighborhood, and we had, uh, eventually, we had our elected representatives to the board of aldermen. And I, I always went with my parents to vote. And we knew that if we elected certain people, that they would do a good job of representing what we needed in our neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. And that was when I first became aware of how voting translates into accessing an avenue to power and to power itself. Mm-hmm. And that's and, and A. Philip Randolph and Bayard Rustin understood that's where the power lay. You, you get active, you get involved, even if it's the, the dog catcher. You get involved. You get to know how power works. You know the little ins and outs and, and the idiosyncrasies of politics. You learn how to navigate these, these often perilous waters. And that's where the power, and they understood that. They were extraordinary men for their times. And, you know, the people that wanted to preserve the status quo knew that, too. And they did everything they could to suppress the votes, I suspect, and the, the rights of people to, or to exercise their rights to vote. And there was a, do you, you I'm, I'm assuming you know the name Ida B. Wells. Sure. Ida, Ida Wells understood that, too. She was one of the most dangerous women in America in the early 20th century because she was fearless, she was smart, and she knew how to use news media. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess what I'm wondering about Ellen Sweets is how we've talked about the poll tax and we've talked about literacy tests, and that was really 
the last half of the 18th century and the first half of, I'm, I'm sorry, last half of the 19th century and the first half of the 20th century. And then there was the Civil Rights Act, and most importantly, relative to our conversation in 1965, the Voting Rights Act. And you saw people registering to vote all across the country. First and most prominently in the African-American communities. Absolutely. Secondly, beginning, I guess, around the mid-70s, in the Latino communities, both the Puerto Rican communities particularly and the Mexican-American communities. We had, with that voter registration, much, much higher voter participation than we had ever had before. But it's diminished again. Well, everybody got fat and lazy. You know, we said we can vote now. And, oh, wait a minute. Is there a basketball game on tonight? Oh, wait a minute. Is, is this the Super Bowl? Oh, wait a minute. Is this Game 7 of the World Series? Um, I, 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 I don't have time to vote. I'm too tired. I, I wish I could. I wish I understood that. I'm, I'm not a historian, and I'm really not... Uh, equipped to discuss and with, with any accuracy. I can only talk about what I theorize. And that is, somehow or other, we became comfortable. And it didn't seem as important anymore. For many people, it, re- it remained a critical issue. But it just didn't seem as important. We had, we had Blacks and Hispanics on uh, the uh, board of aldermen. We had them in our state legislatures. We had them in uh, the House and the Senate. Not a lot, but um, we had our representation. Let them take care of it. And I think this sort of laissez-faire attitude permeated much of American society. That's what I think. I have no way statistically... Of, of backing it up, but that's how it's felt to me. We, have, we probably only have about 10 minutes left, maybe even less than that, Ellen Sweets. And I, I, I want to, recognizing the validity of your statement and the truth of it, I mean, in the 2016 election nationally, we only had a 52% voter yes. turnout. And 53% of white women voted for Donald Trump. That's right. How do you, how on earth do, do you reconcile that with sanity? <laughs> I'm not going to try and answer that There you one. go. <laughs> I, I, w- I won't go there at all. But where I will go is to ask you what, you know, in Colorado, just parenthetically, and that's where we are right now, when there was a 52% national turnout, there was a 72% turnout in 2016 in Colorado. And it's attributable to the mail-in ballot. Yes. The mail-in ballot is one way of increasing voter participation and yes. decreasing voter suppression. What are some of the other things that might be able to be done? 
Well, I know in Texas, um, they have lawyers standing in line, <coughs> sorry, to monitor voting behavior and practices at precincts um, to, to interfere, to, in, to insinuate themselves if they see uh, behavior that's inappropriate occurring. But we have to be vigilant. You know, who, who, I forget who it was that said, you know, eternal vigilance is the price of freedom. We have to do that. We have to not only go to the polls and vote, we need to keep an eye out for things that are not right. But if the numbers are strong enough, I don't think the votes can be repressed. I think that if the momentum that erupted behind Charlottesville and the Pentland shootings, uh, I'm sorry, the Parkland shootings, if that momentum can be reignited in October, I think that people are going to be overwhelmed by numbers. I, that's my hope. Lord, that's my hope. Do you think it, when, when Bayard Riston we talked about, when he, he said that we needed to go from protest to politics, and A. Philip Randolph, by the way, was Bayard's mentor, the issue today that I'm curious about is with Black Lives Matter, with the Me Too movement, yes. with the Parkland high school kids, will those protests convert to politics? All we can do is hope. I can hear both both Rustin and Philip Philip uh, uh, Philip Randolph and Ida B. Wells walking through neighborhoods saying, "What the heck is wrong with you people? Is this what we fought for? You staying home in an election in 2018 with a madman in the White House? What is wrong with you?" And that's that's my that's my feeling. I mean, I, I wish I think I could be a very wealthy woman if I could come up with uh, a methodology for getting people to vote and to vote as though they have good sense. You're referring to the 53% of white women who voted for Trump, uh, I presume, with that last comment. That absolutely boggles the mind. Do things like voting on Saturday make a difference? Does it make yes. a, Does it make a difference if people who are in prison, there are 2.2 million people in American prisons, probably at least one and three quarter million are people of color. Oh, yeah. If And that, by the way, is, is a kind of voter suppression. If you arrest uh, a young black man for spitting on the sidewalk and he has a, res a record, uh, and, and this tends to happen around election times, leading up to election times. That's way, one way of suppressing the vote. You lock them up, and you know that they won't be out for maybe a year, two, three, five, and then they have to do parole. And then, in some states, they're able to vote. Some states, you still can't vote. If you have any sort of record, you can't vote at all. What kind of insanity is that? Is that voter suppression in your view? I think so. So would you go one step further and say that people who are in prison should be allowed to vote? That's a tough one. That's why a tough is it, one. Why is that a tough one? Because I, you know, I don't think you should vote out of anger and frustration alone. I think it should be an informed consent 
And with the rise of Aryan nations in prisons, um, it makes me nervous. It should, you're looking at me like it should be an easier question to answer. And, and it, it isn't for me. So there, now you have it. I don't know everything. <laughs> <laughs> Ellen Sweets, you know a lot. Um, listen, um, I, I, I want to go back to the kind of barriers that are stopping for people from voting and that are being reinstituted in the last couple of minutes that we have in our program. Well, what, if you work, if you work, and, and many people work two jobs, and you can't get to the polls, but you have Saturday and Sunday off. Why shouldn't you be able to vote on Saturday? Why shouldn't it be easy to mail in your ballot? That's what I did in California the second time I voted. The first time, I was so excited to be uh, voting for Kamala Harris. Uh, I just, I, pull, I, I did what I did with, with my father when I was a kid. I just pulled... I poked a hole and uh, made a little mark in every single box so there would be no question that I was voting for every single Democrat. Although I got to admit, I voted for one Republican because what? he was better than the, the Democratic candidate. What can I tell you? There's nothing wrong with that. No. What, what is um, the effect of same-day voter registration that you cast a ballot? Well, in California, I know I know that same-day registration, you received a provisional ballot, and you, um, and that was it. And as soon as your um, information was verified, your vote was counted. It came in with the, um, uh, with the other absentee ballots. It makes so much sense. I, the, ho- the whole business of making it difficult to vote is a form of suppression. I'm going to make my last question a, um, a difficult one in a sense, and you'll understand what I mean in a moment. At the presidential level, for example, and it could apply to the school board level as well or the dog catcher level that you alluded to before, in the 2016 election, Many people argued that had Bernie Sanders been the Democratic candidate, he would have won. He would have defeated Trump. And that Hillary Clinton was, quote, unquote, a flawed candidate. What is the likelihood for high voter turnout when there are inspiring good candidates that, ref- that themselves within their being reflect their constituencies? Let me respond by saying, and once again, this is just me, if Hillary Clinton had picked Bernie Sanders for her vice president, we'd have Merrick Garland on the Supreme Court. We'd have federal judges that we could trust to be respectful of the rights of others. I mean, justice would be served in a much, oh, in a much better way than it is with the Trump appointees. And I, I caution people, every time the president utters some new inanity, don't pay attention to what he's saying. 
Look at what's happening behind the scenes. Look at what's happening in Congress. Look what's happening with uh, judicial nominations. We have to be smarter about dealing with a demagogue, an ill-informed, semi-literate, narcissistic, pathological liar who is a president. Did I, did I say how I really felt? Well, I, I wouldn't want you to express yourself too overtly. Oh, but, I'm sorry. But I'm so sorry. the subtlety was <laughs> noted. Ellen Sweets, it has been a pleasure having a conversation with you about getting out there to vote and making your vote count. Thank you so much for joining us on Outside In. Oh, thank you for having me. You've been listening to Outside In, an original production of KBUT, hosted by Roger Kahn and produced and engineered by Mark Dugan. Hear archived episodes at kbut.org. Just look under the Programs tab.